Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the National Geographic Society. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Our normal episodes are informational or question and answer with an expert, but this week, we're going to tell a story. This week, we have four guests who are going to talk about an incredible series of events halfway up a mountain in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Our first guest is Jeff Burke, who is a Jackson Hole ski patroller and wrote an extraordinary article outlining this series of events, and this episode is based on his article. So I'm going to let Jeff take it away. How long does forever last? For Peggy Hayes, a visiting skier to Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, forever lasted about 15 minutes on March 1st, 2020, the moment her husband dropped on the slope to the second in which he left the scene in a rescue sled with scarcely a pulse. The call came in at Ski Patrol Dispatch at 12.49 p.m. that CPR was in progress somewhere on the South Pass Traverse. Now, this should come as no surprise to anyone that a heart attack halfway up a mountain is less than ideal. Not that anyone has ever made the case for a convenient heart attack, The gravity of the situation is quite obvious. Nevertheless, there's a plan, and CPR in progress over the airwaves puts that plan into motion. Jim and Peggy Hayes graciously gave us permission to relive their story, not only as a teaching tool for all of us in the outdoor medical field, but because it's a relevant anecdote of luck favoring the prepared when it matters most, and an individual who beat unrelenting setbacks after undergoing such an affair. I was able to interview several key players who are a part of this event, to put together a timeline and story of how Jim Hayes transcended a life-altering experience. Jim and Peggy live outside Sacramento, California, where he owns a global consulting firm that advises the high-tech industry on how to sell more effectively. As a younger man, he flew in the Air Force as a navigator and achieved the rank of captain. While serving, he earned his private pilot's license and since then has acquired an instrument rating and is qualified to fly seaplanes. Until recently, he flew often. He has been a PADI certified scuba instructor since his early 20s, free diving over 200 feet below surface on multiple occasions, and doing things like night dives with manta rays, or as I like to say, no. <laughs> He's also logged 400 plus freefall jumps as a skydiver. He's active, traveling across the globe with Peggy, and really not what you'd consider a likely candidate for an on mountain heart attack. Yet there he was. It was the second time that Peggy and I had been to Jackson Hole, and we got a chance to ride behind draft horses, feed the elk doing all these iconic things, enjoying the scenery, being on top of the mountain. What we jokingly tell everyone is we had an absolutely awesome time right up until the point where we didn't. (laughs) Right. So we hit the lift and he wasn't feeling that great. So I told him that I bet you're probably hungry. So let's go down for lunch. Then we took a cat track and that's where I waited for him. He stopped about six feet from me and said, babe, I don't feel so good. And then he just fell like a tin soldier The whole time I'm thinking, is this low blood pressure? If it's a heart attack, you're not supposed to be seizing. And he was seizing and foaming at the mouth. I started yelling for someone to call 911. Peggy herself is a certified anesthetist by trade who manages airways for a living and has participated in countless codes on the operating table. He was still moaning, so I knew that he was still moving air. So I just grabbed his tongue, got it out of his way, opened his airway, and I just used my thumbs to jaw thrust him. He was still breathing at this point. I checked his carotid artery, and he still had a pulse. In these split seconds, I'm thinking, what the hell is this? Sheer randomness plays a large role in all of our lives. Dr. Jacob Chapman, an emergency room physician on vacation from Massachusetts, was on South Pass Traverse exactly when Peggy witnessed Jim Crumble. He skied upon her struggling with him less than a minute after he went down. 
Chapman recalled seeing Peggy at Jim's head and she was keeping his airway open and he was just rolling around on the ground moaning and not able to talk. He recalled how amazing Peggy was for keeping it together. Chapman knew it was a heart attack. He reached down to feel a pulse and heard someone say that ski patrol had been called. They kept a close eye on him, but then Jim stopped moving as much and they lost his pulse. The team started doing chest compressions. To be clear, a typical heart attack usually occurs when a blood clot blocks blood flow to the heart. Without blood, tissue loses oxygen and dies. As we discussed in our previous episode on how to save a life, starting chest compressions early is a critical step in keeping blood flow perfusing through the tissues so the organs like the heart and brain stay alive. Jackson Hole Ski Patrol is lucky to have the medical direction of the St. John's Emergency Medical Physicians Group, a cadre of ER docs, physician assistant, and St. John's nurses who rotate through the Teton Village Clinic each winter. Dr. Jeff Greenbaum is the main energy center behind our empowered protocols and along with his colleagues, tailor our ongoing training to better suit the potential needs of guests in distress. Dr. Greenbaum and colleagues have tried to define what helps people having emergencies on the mountain versus off the mountain and exactly what needs to happen before and after they are brought down. We drill these emergencies regularly so that when they actually happen, there's no question. We know what we're doing. Ian Barwell is an ER nurse and patroller who was on scene the day of Jim's event. There's a seamless integration between the clinic and the ski patrol, and as well as EMS and St. John's Hospital. Additionally, several of us work in multiple overlapping departments or organizations, so we know each other well and are able to work together easily. Then we have medical direction coming from the same providers, Dr. Greenbaum and company, that we're bringing the patients to. All of this adds up to create an enviable situation that can really benefit our patients, which is the ultimate goal. So what sort of resources do you have on Ski Patrol and what training do you have? Well, let me give you a rough sketch. Outdoor emergency care, the medical training required for ski patrolling in the U.S., is essentially an EMT basic certification with an outdoor emergency focus, minus the ambulance experience. The St. John's ER group has taken the time to augment that training by providing the Jacksonville Ski Patrol simple ancillary protocols that allow for slightly modified levels of care on the hill in those initial critical moments of medical emergencies. And it's that kind of forethought that gives people like Jim Hayes the edge when misadventure comes crashing. So the clinic knows exactly what's going on with our protocol because they teach us that protocol. When they hear CPR in progress on the radio, they know to get the show ready. The reality of heart attacks in the field isn't uplifting. According to the American Heart Association, around 475,000 Americans per year die from cardiac arrest. Most of those, or 350,000, occur outside of a hospital. That's nearly 1,000 per day nationwide. 90% of people who have a cardiac arrest outside of the hospital die, but when CPR is started right away, you can double or triple that person's chance of survival. Adding EMS and advanced medical services can further help the patient's chances. There are certain arrhythmias to the heart that are shockable, where if an electrical shock is applied to the patient's heart, there's a good chance of it going back to a normal rhythm. These shockable arrhythmias include ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, and their rate of survival is higher than non-shockable rhythms like asystole, also known as flatlining, and pulseless electrical activity, or PEA. Having an AED immediately available really helps these patients, as do advanced airways like king tubes and intubation and, as we've discussed, CPR. According to the dispatch log, at 12.50 p.m., Bill Fogarty was the first patroller to arrive on scene approximately a minute after the initial radio call. Dr. Chapman, the R doc from Massachusetts, and a friend were performing CER while Peggy monitored the airway. So, Ian, you heard there was a person who collapsed on the radio, what do you remember seeing when you arrived on scene? 
So the first thing I remember thinking when I skied up was, wow, there's a lot of people here, both patrollers and bystanders. There were skis everywhere. My buddy Jeremy actually was there and he's an off-duty ski host who happened to be free skiing with Dr. Chapman that day and he was directing traffic. It was kind of wild to see him on scene. When I made my way to the scene, workers had the airway managed with O2 in place. CPR was in progress and the AED was attached. Another group was ready in the Lucas. Really, the final piece we needed was a code leader, so I slid into that role. You know, I remember seeing Peggy there, answering questions and helping out. And later, when I realized she was Jim's spouse, I could not believe how composed she was. It was really helpful. I remember screaming at Bill, do you have oxygen? My first thought was airway, breathing, circulation. I knew we needed airway support, and airway is definitely my area of expertise. Soon, a second patroller, Nate Fuller, arrived with an oral pharyngeal airway, and it got placed in Jim's mouth. The patrollers started appearing with supplementary oxygen, advanced airway management devices, and an AED. Then the patrollers brought a Lucas device. The Lucas device is a mechanical chest compression device that helps deliver high-quality chest compressions to sudden cardiac arrest patients in the field, during transport, and in the hospital. The patrollers could turn on the device and keep giving him chest compressions all the way down the mountain to the clinic and then to the hospital. I really believe that the Lucas was one of the many, many amazing pieces of equipment that this ski patrol had and that helped save Jim's life. And I just want to add, not just save my life, but give me my whole life back. Before we had these devices, you know, there was different systems in place of trying to do some sort of compressions on the way down the hill, transporting with a maybe a ski patroller in the toboggan. It was dangerous for the patroller and also just not as effective. Yeah. These devices are game changers. I can't imagine giving chest compressions while sledding down a hill. It was before my time on ski patrol, so neither could I. <laughs> <laughs> Just like training, patrollers with their specific tools assumed pit crew positions taught by the ER docs and nurses. Every person has a specific job and position, and all perform these tasks simultaneously and with as little talking as possible. There were so many amazing ski patrollers who pulled me away from the scene. They were cutting away his clothes and getting the AED on. And then the Lucas, I think they shocked him like three times. I don't remember people talking as much as I do that they were so in sync with each other and they knew just what to do. And that's what it feels like when I'm in the operating room with other anesthetists who I've worked with a lot. We don't even talk. You just know what needs to be done and it gets done. At 12.57 p.m., patroller Rachel Kunkel relays to Mountain Station. One shock delivered, she says, still working him. At 12.58 p.m., Kunkel offers a follow-up. Second shock delivered, spontaneously breathing. At 1.01 p.m., patroller Megan Ratzik radios Mountain Station a third time, administered three shocks, three shockable rhythms, and advanced airway in place, about to begin transport. Ian, do you recall any specifics about the teamwork on the mountain? Yeah, definitely. First, the way the subgroups of the team interacted was really impressive. How they transitioned from compression cycle to shock delivered to attaching the Lucas that coordination really helped to minimize the time that compressions were interrupted. And the same was true for loading Jim into the sled for transport. By the time his third shock was delivered, Jim was in a vacuum splint and the sled was right next to him with drivers in position, which is our protocol. Three rounds of CPR, then load and go. By the time we reached the clinic, Dr. Wheeler and the nurses had all their equipment and supplies ready to go, and EMS was already headed our way. You know, during our interview, Peggy kept reiterating that in spite of the heart attack, how everything else went right that day which is a pretty stoic position to take in light of such otherwise dire circumstances. So we were on a cat track, not a steep slope, 
He fell not very far from me. There were people around to call 911, an ER physician, skis up not long after he fell, and then ski patrol arrived with their AED, a Lucas, a King Tube. It was just so amazing. Ian, how do you coordinate who brings what to the field and what's in your med packs? So that CPR in progress radio call that Jeff mentioned puts everything into motion. There are checklists at every duty station, and as responders from the closest station head out the door, they each grab a piece of equipment on that list. If backup's needed, we can ask for gear specifically. We're fortunate to have things like King tubes in our airway bags, and we've advocated to have Lucas devices and vacuum splints. Kings offer better oxygenation and ventilation to the lungs than a simple oral pharyngeal airway. There's also better downstream effects, so it's not just saving his life right now, but also increasing survivability and brain function and ultimately quality of life later on. Then having the Lucas to provide high-quality compressions during transport and toboggan is a game-changer. As patrollers, we want to have all the tools available to make a difference in saving people's lives, and in Jim's case, seconds and minutes mattered. A king tube is a latex-free single-lumen tube with a distal and proximal balloon that occludes the esophagus, or your food tube, and the oropharynx, kind of like the back of your throat and nose, creating a direct route for oxygen to the trachea, otherwise known as your breathing tube, and your lungs. This is in contrast to the oral pharyngeal airway that Ian mentioned, which can be helpful because it keeps the airway open, but a lot of the supplemental oxygen and air can still be directed into the patient's stomach, which then can lead to stomach inflation and distension, vomiting, and airway compromise. So a king tube is also considered a bit easier to insert than an endotracheal tube we would insert in the hospital. So a king tube can save a lot of time if it's inserted properly. After three cycles of the AED, Jim was taken by toboggan on high-flow supplemental oxygen as the Lucas device continued chest compressions for the entirety of his transport. He arrived at the base where the handoff to the clinic staff took place. He was immediately put on a monitor where they detected a pulse and organized rhythm. Nurses got IVs going, pushed fluids, and Dr. Wheeler, the doctor working in the clinic that day, pulled the king tube and intubated Jim using an endotracheal tube we discussed a second ago. Trailing a couple minutes behind... Peggy was escorted to the clinic by patrol where she watched the next chapter of her husband's recovery unfold. Watching that code go down, and I say this to everyone in our anesthesia department, it was one of the best codes I have ever seen. It's exactly what ACLS should be. Nobody yelling, nobody shouting. They were just talking in that calm tone. A whole team who knew absolutely what they were doing. If there wasn't excellent work right there at the beginning, he never would have made it to Idaho Falls. Dr. Wheeler pretty much said that the real life saving happened on the hill. To have that equipment show up, and the AED is really what saved his life. That's what got him going again. And the Lucas kept him perfusing en route to the clinic. Once he was in the clinic, he had a pulse. And Dr. Wheeler said that, you know, we helped stabilize him for sure. But had he not had those things in the field, it wouldn't have mattered what happened in the clinic. Once fully stabilized, Jim and Peggy left the clinic by ambulance to St. John's Hospital. This would mark the beginning of a 33-day odyssey spanning three hospitals and three states. After leaving Jackson and spending six days in the ICU in Idaho Falls, Jim was then life-flighted to Salt Lake City, where he and Peggy began a nearly month-long stay at the University of Utah Medical Center. Jim's body would endure a heart pump for 11 days, longer than average intubation, 
an upper and lower GI bleed with an endoscopic clipping, a couple scares of a stroke, and a smattering of CT scans. Plus, his sodium levels remained high, and he was retaining 40 to 50 pounds of water. And just to add salt to our wounds, he got septus from cholecystitis and pancreatitis, adding a midnight trip to interventional radiology for a much-needed biliary drainage tube. Suffice it to say, he passed the event horizon on his way to recovery, just in time for COVID, an earthquake, and while we're at it, a follow-up heart attack on June 1st, where he once again tested the constitution of his lovely wife. It builds character. And despite two medical arrests and an exhaustive month of hospitalization, Jim wrote out this whole episode with no anoxic brain damage. Wow. That certainly does build character. And so welcome to Jim, the survivor about whom this entire episode is written. Jim, do you remember anything about your arrest on the mountain? Well, we skied down Jackson Hole, one of the slopes there, which is just a beautiful mountain. But we'd stopped to kind of... uh, rest and there was a giant yeti statue and we took time to do a quick selfie there and i remember skiing away not feeling that good and that's it i don't remember anything else thankfully all that work that was being done i don't remember a thing so it was kind of a blessing for me what's the first thing you remember after you woke up i woke up (laughs) pretty far away from jackson hole because there was (laughs) idaho fall and then Salt Lake City again. But uh, I woke up after they finally extubated me. What was that, 11 days later? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the first thing I remember thinking was, you've just had your butt kicked. I don't know exactly what all this is, but I know this is where you're going to prove that you're as tough as you think you are because this is not going to be easy, but it's going to be worthwhile. And you've been given a at that point, a second chance. I've begun three so far, but this is going to take a lot of grit and determination. And this is where you're going to take an easy, great, wonderful life. And you're going to keep it that way by staying focused and counting on the love of friends and family to get you through this. That's amazing. And I mean, Peggy, I think, has been such an amazing support for all of this. Like from the first second, having her there is amazing. One thing you mentioned while we were talking before we started recording the episode was that when you had the cardiac arrest, COVID didn't really exist. And when you woke up, it was kind of a full-on pandemic. Do you guys want to talk a little about kind of the shock associated with that? (laughs) I was just going like hour to hour, day to day. I really was in my a bubble. I'm just 100% focused on gym. So I really didn't know about this pandemic going on until my friend calls and said, Salt Lake City's going to start closing down and get some food at the store. And and I was like, what? What's going on? Anyway, I ran immediately to the store. There was one loaf of French bread left, seriously, and some organic peanut butter. I grabbed them both thinking, I can live on this. You know, that's all I need (laughs) from peanut butter and bread. And my hotel was threatening to close down and it didn't end up closing down, but I was like, had my car packed, ready to go at any time. You know, I was going to like sleep in the parking lot of the hospital that it was just so unbelievable. All of the different tests, I guess I had to go through. Do you, Peggy, remember when uh, Jim first woke up and when you were finally able to talk to him again? Oh yeah. So they would give him sedation vacations, they called it. And he would always lean towards my voice when, you know, still when he was intubated, you know, he knew I was there with him. But after they extubated him and he really woke up, 
ICU nurse and I were trying to know, you know, try to determine if he knew where he was. He became so indignant with us. He was like, of course I know where I am. We're on a naval air station. <laughs> he was, it was so funny. That was probably one of the best things. Hey, I was but sure of it. He was positive. <laughs> when did you realize you were not, in fact, on a naval air station? <laughs> when everybody gave me that look. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> so there were so many challenges you guys faced on the road to recovery. I mean, all that stuff that Jeff named a minute ago would require a hospitalization in its own right by itself. But to experience one thing after another in those moments, how did you stay positive and face each of those challenges? Well, for me, it took a long time. So what I did is I just took one hour at a time. And then, you know, maybe the next week I would go, what happened in the morning, went to what happened to the afternoon and so on and so on. So it helped me just to stay in the now and to not look too far down the road at what was ahead of me. So my brother flew in hours after all this happened and he was my pillar through most of it, just kept me true North Star through it all and not wondering what's going to happen down the road. So, and also we have a huge network of circle of friends and family. So I just really leaned on them a lot. Yeah. I think you had to spend so much time being such a strong support for Jim. And I'm so glad that, you know, you also had such a strong support network because that's what you really need to get through really difficult times like this. And it was hard because this is where COVID came in because now the flights weren't coming to Salt Lake and people were so afraid to, you know, all of our friends, of course, would want to fly out to be supportive. And I just had two really great friends and they just said, to hell with COVID, we're coming out. You know, if I have to just do your laundry, I'll do your laundry, whatever needs to be done. And so that just helped hugely to have familiar faces there. And our other friends, they drove my car from Sacramento all the way to Salt Lake City, just so I would have, you know, transportation number one, but also kind of just a piece of home. And that was amazing. And then they flew on back. So that was another great thing when I saw their faces and it was just a slice of home. So that helped a lot. That's awesome. So Ian, do you have any suggestions for our listeners about how to stay safe in the mountains? Well, I mean, I think the obvious lesson here is to marry an anesthetist. <laughs> Agreed. Right. But barring that, it's really important to have training and CPR and wilderness first aid. Or even better, it would be a wilderness first responder course. A good education and skill set are your best survival tools. Second, I'd recommend understanding the specific hazards of the places that you like to recreate. For instance, snow science and avalanche education. Something we take pretty seriously here, and a lot of locals here really have a lot of that education. Lastly, being able to contact local search and rescue, ski patrol, and other rescue organizations is critical. Having those numbers in your phone and being able to have give a good location, you start that again. Lastly, being able to contact search and rescue, ski patrol, and other rescue organizations is critical. Have those numbers in your phone and be able to give a good location before you enter the wilderness, before you need them, and never travel alone. That's all really great advice. Have you seen often that like particularly backcountry skiers carrying GPS really has improved their ability to be rescued? Absolutely. Every phone has it. So our dispatcher will very often use that if the person is unfamiliar with the train, which happens a lot. 
she'll ask that person to send them their coordinates. They can pull up their GPS on the phone or even they'll drop a pin. So we'll, I'll give them my cell phone number and say, hey, text me your drop a pin. And Jeff and I went out on a rescue in the Granite Canyon where we had the guy's location and I was able to use my phone to bring me straight to him. I mean, who knows how many hours that saved. It still took a long time. <laughs> it did. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea our phones could do that. Yeah. It's pretty slick. Yeah, you can pull up a compass. We'll give your GPS coordinates on it. Or if, if you just text me, you can just send me your location directly there. Very, very cool. And as far as a rescuer goes, it empowers the rescuers. It gives Ian and I the confidence to be like, okay, this guy's close and we can follow his signal until we can find his tracks. And then simultaneously, he and I can be just talking in real time to one another about what we're thinking we're going to come across and how we're going to make a safe egress all the way back into the mountain resort. So it's an empowering tool. Right. I mean, because the fear there is getting too low. You never want to get too low because then you're useless. You have to send another round of people, which uses more resources. It's really helpful. And like Jeff said, really empowers us to make good decisions. We can move with confidence. Very cool. I bet you guys have a lot of interesting stories of various rescues. Honestly, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for another episode. Absolutely. Perfect. So Jim and Peggy, after everything that you've experienced, do you have any advice for our listeners, maybe related to navigating the medical system or any advice really? Yes, absolutely. One of the first things I did is I had a friend grab a small notebook. You can get them anywhere. Most of the times in the little shops, in the hospital, you can grab one. Then what I did is I wrote down that day's nurses, doctors, Jim's progress. I felt more control when my world just had blown up and later gave me the names of all the people to thank. And here is my advice to the medical colleagues out there. Allowing families to participate in morning rounds was huge for me. I could hear that day's plan. I could ask my questions. I felt like I was a part of his care. The other thing I did is I just assigned one person to disseminate all of the information to all of our friends and family. So I would just text that day's progress or what had happened. And then that person like disseminated to all the other, really some hundreds of people that were interested in what was happening with Jim. That's another biggie. Otherwise, you're just answering so many texts because of course everyone's concerned, but you cannot put your energy to all of that. So that's one of my other tips for people when something catastrophe happens. But mostly Jim and I, we want to give hope to those who've also been given a poor prognosis. Jim was given a 5% chance of survival. And here we are, part of that 5%, but we aren't just surviving, we're really thriving. And so here's to the 5%ers. That's so incredible to hear and to think about. I mean, just knowing the odds that you overcame to be here today. So Jim, what surprised you most about everything that happened? One of the most amazing things to me, especially after hearing all this from Ian and Jeff and hearing again from Peggy, is that I really didn't suffer any mental impairment. That said, life clearly has changed a bit. Aviation has been a huge part of my life, and I'm not allowed planes anymore as a result of my new automated internal cardiac defibrillator that lives in my chest. So I won't be able to get medical clearance to fly anymore. That's a big no-no for the FAA. It's okay if you die. They just don't want you to become unconscious because the thing zapped you. (laughs) Can you still fly with an instructor? I can and I have. 
That's awesome. And last weekend, I went zipping around on a sport motorcycle from Sacramento to Calistoga. So I'm still living a life of adventure. It's just different kinds of adventures. Absolutely. And I think that just verifies you're thriving. Totally thriving. So he works out with a trainer um, two times a week to get his core and his arms stronger. He walks three to five miles pretty much every day. So he is doing well for a man whose ejection fraction is 20%. That's amazing. I mean, I think there's no better way to say it besides not just surviving, but thriving. You're really absolutely taking advantage of all of the time that you have. And I'm sure, I mean, just hearing your story gives me a greater appreciation for the everyday. So it's really incredible to see what you guys are doing. Thank you. Peggy, when you sent the email to AJ Wheeler, or maybe it came from Drew to AJ Wheeler, I was in the ER that day working with him. Oh, wow. And yeah, I came in at one o'clock, I think that day, and he had been there since 7am. And he said, Oh, Ian, remember that guy from South Pass? I was like, yeah. And he's like, he's alive. And I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. You know, we never know what's going to happen afterwards, as we've talked about. You know, we usually do get a pretty good follow through and follow up. But because COVID happened right on the tail of this, we had kind of lost track. And we were so focused on what we're doing in the ER and protocols and adapting to that situation that it would come through my mind a lot. But, you know, we just didn't have that follow through. You know, we were at a hard point in the ER at that time. Getting that note from you was, was pretty special. Oh, that's so awesome. So it took quite the train or to track you guys down. So I had a friend whose daughter lives in Jackson Hole, and then she had like friends of friends who were of ski patrol. And so then we tried to get the email and it took a little bit of investigation to get that email. And, but it was just a really so important to us to thank everybody because as a medical provider, I know that we don't always see the results of our education and all of that training that we do. And so it was so important for me to thank every single person that I could. Thank you. Well, absolutely. And thank you. It was a real ray of sunshine in a very dark time. So it really made a difference to us. Thanks. For both of us, brother. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Jeff, you had a great way of putting it when you talked about the eye, how many needles had to be perfectly threaded to get the incredible outcome that I got. I just thought that was a a brilliant way to explain it. I got that from Dr. Chapman because originally he was like, I'll help this lady do CPR. And he was a little, maybe it was a little jaded. But then when he saw the AED and the Lucas and all this stuff just show up on the hill, he was like, his tune came correct. He was like, holy shit, this guy's going to pull it off. And he's really stoked. You know, when I told him like, oh, chased him down as well, he was blown away. He couldn't have been more stoked. This had a happy ending. It was great. And we were able to talk to him. So we stalked him too. (laughs) We did. Yeah. And we had a great telephone conversation with him, thanking him also. That's really cool. And incidentally, so he was skiing with my buddy, Jeremy. So I was able to get in contact with him. And then there was another guy, Gene, the big, tall guy with the orange hair. I hadn't seen that guy in like six years. And he used to live here. So I skied up and I'm like, hey, that's Gene. (laughs) I'm like, okay, focus. And so we invited all those guys to talk with us. And yeah, just to reiterate, after everything showed up, he was like, well, this is pretty incredible. So it was kind of this bizarre moment for me when I first entered the scene. <laughs> it was like... Jackson Hole seems 
like a, a very small community, kind of like you guys are really your family, you know each other. I don't know. It just seems like you're all very connected. We are. And in fact, my girlfriend was one of the nurses in the clinic that day. So when I came down and we kind of transferred care and helping and working with her, it was early on in our relationship. And that was something that kind of <laughs> solidified that. So that was cool. A couple that saves lives together stays together. <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome, Ian. Right. <laughs> Both Jill and I, thank you. <laughs> but mostly we're just happy you're here and we're talking to you. Thank you. Thankfully, an event like Jim's is rare, but it is not singular. Jackson Hole has had two other medical arrests on the mountain in the last five years. And we're proud to say that early activation of EMS on the hill and intervention by patrol helped to save another individual because of ongoing training and tools like AEDs, king tubes, and Lucas devices. After a punishing 2020, I'm happy to be reminded that luck, training, and tenacity can still do a little good in the world. Jeff and Ian, thank you so much for all that you do to keep everyone safe in the mountains. What would you recommend to first responders or other medical professionals who might come across medical emergencies in austere environments? Well, we follow a pretty simple plan. There's this old climbing ranger named Rennie Jackson, and he really distills it down to like, what's the plan? Who's in charge? And for us, for Jim, your whole scene, the fact that we train and we have a plan in place put forth by people like Dr. Jeff Greenbaum and the nurses and their colleagues, we have the tools to actually affect some kind of positive outcome. And I think just having that plan is kind of a paramount message to be drilled home. And then to add on to that, I would just say practice, practice, practice. Seek out continuing education and stay current with advances in protocol and rescue technology. Austere environments present unique challenges, so you have to stay creative. Absolutely. Jeff, you want to wrap this up for us? Sure. One thing that hasn't changed much is Jim's wry humor. In addition to having a wife who now specializes in resurrection, he can often be seen sporting a new t-shirt that says, but did you die? A couple times, perhaps. But who's counting? Jim, did you want to show your little <laughs> sign that you had? Sure, we can read it off. <laughs> Be hard to kill. In Jackson, we love stickers. Uh, we wonder if we can make some of those stickers. <laughs> yeah, all you have to do is email me. I'll make sure you get as many as you need. And you can hand it out to your brother. Well, I'll put them on our skis and everything. <laughs> I love that so much. So, yes, the lesson for this episode is be hard to kill. <laughs> Perfect. All right. That's it for this episode. Our guests today were Jeff Burke, Jim and Peggy Hayes, and Ian Barwell. This episode was written by Jeff Burke and Elena Rajagopal and based on an article written by Jeff Burke for the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. This episode was funded by the National Geographic Society. Let us know what you thought of the new format. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating, subscribe, or send this episode to someone you know who might enjoy it. Feel free to connect with us on our website, theemergencydocs.com, or Instagram at theemergencydocs. Until next time.